You're listening to Cornerstone Conversations, a podcast by Cornerstone in Fort Worth, Texas. My name is Jeremy McNair, and I'm the worship pastor at Cornerstone. Today, I'm joined by my co-host, David Wilson. He's one of our associate pastors here, leads all of our student ministries, and is one of our teaching pastors. Normally, we have Bobby Harrell with us. He's our lead pastor. He's out on sabbatical right now, so he will be returning in a few weeks. Until then, we're starting a wonderful new series at Cornerstone called Root Work, and I can't wait to dig into it and to really explore the implications of personal renewal and really rediscovering what it means to be a fully engaged believer. As we have this conversation together, we'd love for our listeners to be a part of what's happening here. We love and we have loved throughout our entire time making this podcast, getting feedback and responses from our listeners. If you have any questions or anything that you'd like us to respond to as we go through this study, we'd love for you to text your questions to 817-809-3040. We'll take all of the very best and most applicable questions and we'll respond to them as we continue in future episodes. Hey, we hope you enjoyed our first Corinthians study on this podcast. If you missed any of those episodes, they are available on all of the major podcast providers, as well as on our website at cbc.family media. Again, as you listen, we just want to send out a huge thank you for listening and engaging in the word and for joining in the study together as we have these cornerstone conversations. So David, this Sunday, we started a brand new series at Cornerstone. It's called Root Work. You gave such a wonderful kind of history lesson to open up the whole series. And one thing that I think might have happened is it was just so much information at once. Just thinking about it and reflecting on it as we've been talking and planning what this Mm -hmm. podcast needs to look like for today for this particular episode. We kind of decided it would be good maybe to rehash a little bit of that history lesson, sure. uh, maybe engage in a conversation here so that we can really train our minds to start thinking backward to learn yeah. how to move forward. That's right. And also knowing how we got to where we are helps us to identify what to do next. Right. Because there's certain markers that we can learn from and not repeat as history would have it. Right. So as we talked about this past Sunday, and I know that was a lot to absorb, but it was great. It was great information. It's just, it's just so much to, you know, it's very much a fire hydrant moment. Sure. Sure. Well, so as we look back, particularly at American history and Western history, as we come out of world war two, the church in the West is doing really, really well for pretty obvious reasons. People out of the war realized kind of the depths of human human depravity. Yeah. They saw the atrocities of war, the horrible things that happened. And then they also suffered at home. Those who weren't at war also suffered through rationing and going to work for the war effort and, and all of that. Everyone's gained a whole new perspective and really has had to learn a whole new kind of dependence upon God. That's right. And so when people are coming back from the war, they're going back home, the church, particularly in America, begins to burst at the seams. And I think, you know, this is kind of that golden era. I'm putting that in quotes of the church in America. But what begins to happen is that in the 60s and in the 70s, despite the church being kind of a respectable institution, because you've got great figures like Martin Luther King Jr. who are out there speaking for inequality within the civil rights movement. And so you've got a legitimate person, a legitimate pastor, church person Mm. doing legitimate things for legitimate reasons. And again, the church has kind of a deference, a respect. Again, I think that's probably the best way to put it, a respect in the broader culture. And it's also the way that people were raised. Yeah, well, Um, especially in like the civil rights movement, 
the church was always tied oh, to yeah. the freedom of people. That's right. And the church was always tied to the advancement of equality That's right. and the depression of inequality. That's the right. church is always tied to that throughout the civil rights movement. That's right. Actually, one of the interesting things that Martin Luther King Jr. and his other partners would do is before they would ever go do a march or a particular protest, they would always go to a church mm-hmm. in that community. Yeah. They would meet together. They would do some worship time together and then they would pray. And they would spend a lot of time in prayer before they ever started their walk or their protest, or their sit-in, or their whatever it was, because they wanted to make sure that they were continually linked to the source of this whole, like you just said. Yeah, it it gives the whole thing purpose. That's right. And I find that fascinating because, again, that legitimates what the church is all about. It's not just a stodgy institution that sits over here on the side, but rather it's a thing that enters into our real and everyday lives. But then in the 60s and in the 70s, as things go, people get more lackadaisical with their faith or they care less or whatever happens over time. Cultural Christianity begins to set in and then you have the revolutions of the 60s and the 70s where you have the sexual revolution and then in the 70s you have what is called the me decade. And while the church is still important to a lot of people, what's happening in media, what's happening in marketing particularly And what's happening, especially, I hate to demonize California because I know lots of wonderful Californians. I was born in California. What are you doing? I know you. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So I don't mean to demonize California, but again, what's coming out of Hollywood and what's coming out of specific marketing schemes that is making a countercultural life look really interesting and really cool begins to sweep across middle America. And so now what we see through the 60s and 70s is kind of a diminishing in the older ways of doing things. Mm -hmm. And now there's a newer way that we want to do things. And so one of the quotes that I brought up from Mark Sayers in a book called Disappearing Church was that the new belief was the truth was not to be found in class struggle or political consciousness, but rather in the journey into self. And this very quickly and very easily fixates a person's mind on myself and what I'm all about. And that becomes then the most important thing moving forward. If we just even stop there, (laughs) that would be a great lesson to understand is that individual freedom, autonomy, the highest good is my own self-expression and my independence, my freedom, my happiness then right there we can understand a lot of the issues in the church is moving forward. Yeah, well, when culture starts shifting to more of an individualistic mindset, Mm -hmm. then that mindset creeps into what people believe the church to be. That's exactly correct. Which I think then continues into the next decade. That's right. So in the 80s, you've got what I was talking about this past Sunday, the contemporary church movement. There's a movement that's spearheaded by well-intentioned people. There were missionaries that I mentioned specifically who were coming back and giving church growth strategies. And then there were also pastors and church growth strategists who looked to business structures on how best to improve the church's reach, the church's cultural currency or cultural capital. What I mean when I say that is the ability to speak with the culture. Yeah. Well, and this is really where church marketing starts becoming a thing. This was never a thing before now. And it's because the culture shifted towards what is best for me. How can I be most fulfilled? As you talk about the me decade and the me Mm -hmm. culture and the individualistic mindset, Churches then had to pivot towards catering to the individual's needs versus the corporate needs. That's exactly right. And so this movement 
it believed that if we just made church more relevant, if we made it more comfortable, more approachable, more like what you'd see at maybe a concert or yeah. some other experience that you actually want to go to and will pay money to go <laughs> <Right>. to, <laughs> we want to make it look more like that so that people will want to come here and yeah. so that our young people and really all people would want to be a part of what we're doing. And that's why you start to see some alternative modes to church. I specifically call that like the Jesus movement. I'm in the seventies, but on into the eighties, you have churches opening up in pubs. You have techno music yeah. churches where they're <laughs> playing techno songs and it becomes this whole gathering. In fact, I think a specific instance of that is in the UK. There's a Sunday gathering movement that occurred where they were trying to bring the youth in. And so they began to play pop punk and EDM or electrical dance music yeah. as their forms of worship. And then they'd have like a church time, but this became popular in that era. But the problem was that for all of the bluster of popularity and relevancy, there wasn't a deep formation that was happening in the lives of these Christians, because again, it was all about me. It's all right. about what I wanted and what was comfortable to me. And so then we get into the 90s when the counterculture really begins to take sway. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned just as an example, Nirvana's song Smells Like Teen Spirit. I think it came out in like 94 and it was such a big deal in Nirvana. Yeah. And there were other bands too. I used them kind of as a typical idea of what the counterculture looked like in the 90s. And I also talked about my extreme teen. Did you have one of those? You have I did extreme? have one. Yeah, of course I did. <laughs> yeah, we all had extreme. I was an extreme teen for sure. <laughs> we all had the extreme teen Bibles and VBS was really a huge, giant, big deal. Again, you talked about church marketing, right? We're trying to bring a lot of people in. And again, this is all really well-intentioned ideas and plans in order to share the gospel with people. Right. The problem is that we made a lot of converts, not a lot of disciples. Right. And so now you have this problem into the two thousands and into where we are now, where there's this revolving back door that's open because people will come in and they'll be really excited about your church. And they really like what you're about. And then five to six months later, maybe even five to six weeks later, hmm. they're checking out another church that may fit their needs. Well, and I think this was even a problem that the church created for itself. I think so. As we really started focusing on what the needs of the people were versus what the command of the gospel was. Mm, that's good. But what ended up happening was we turned ourselves into a multi-faction corporation, if you would. That's right. So now, if you don't like this kind of music, just go down the street. <laughs> There's right. another church that has a different kind of music. Yeah. Or if you don't like this color carpet, sure. go down the street. There's one that'll suit your taste better. And we created this yep. monster even that... that if you don't like it or if it doesn't suit your individual needs, you can find mm -hmm. another one. It feels a lot like going to Target or Walmart or something like that. If right. I don't like this product, I can put it back on the shelf and go get this one. Yeah. So there is this consumerism kind of mindset that comes into people because, again, it's all about me and about what I want. Right. And the church's response to try to handle that was just to ramp up relevance more and more and more. But in the process of ramping yes. up in relevance, we catered to an That's individualistic right. mindset. That's right. And I think we come by it rightly. Oh, yeah. With the best of intentions. Well, I think exactly. one thing that Pastor Bobby says often is we don't be too critical of the generations That's that right. have come before us <laughs> That's right. because they brought us the gospel. I came to know the Lord through churches yep. like this. Yep. And so I don't want to be hypercritical of it, but mm -hmm. at the same time, we can look back. I mean, at the very beginning of this episode, we said, we want to look back at history and know what the mistakes were sure. so that we can learn from them and move forward. And That's I think right. one of the greatest mistakes was that we catered as churches mm -hmm. far too much to the individual. 
Now, I think we want to be really clear with what we're saying. We think a lot of that move was, or at least some of the moves in that were really, really good. Yeah. You do want to update your modes of worship or your modes of reaching people in order to be culturally relevant to the extent that you want people to be able to come into the church and recognize that you have some excellent things happening in the church. Yeah. Even look back at our previous series through first Corinthians, Mm -hmm. the commands that Paul gave the church at Corinth were very different than the church in Galatia. That's right. And the reason why was because they were very different cultural contexts that he was speaking to. And so we have to be mindful of the fact that we are in a very particular cultural context. Right. And obviously, if we're trying to reach the people of our culture, then Mm -hmm. we need to be reflective of the people we're trying to reach. That's right. The problem is when we say that your need and your preferences trump the command of the gospel to make disciples. Very, very well said. And so that's like one head of the spear here, one head of the trident, if you would. Yeah. And another part of it is that while this is happening in the church, the culture is progressing out of a Christian understanding. So Mark Sayers in this book, he does some fascinating work. I just can't recommend this book, Disappearing Church, enough for a American or Western context kind of person. Yeah. He talks about there being three kinds of culture. The first kind of culture is paganism. And that culture is very tribal. It's scared of everything. Everything is superstitious. There are demons in the woods. You get what I'm trying to say. Life is kind of dangerous and things are really scary and unknown. The second kind of culture that comes along, maybe progresses out of first culture is what we've seen in the past, like in American history in Europe, places like that, well, really all of the developing world, even now where there is a rule of law, there's a government in place, there are institutions to help guide a society toward mm-hmm. human flourishing and morality and things like that. Yeah. That's a second culture. Then he defines the third culture, which comes out of second culture, wants to retain all the good of second culture, but then question everything second culture did. Mm. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. It wants to redefine everything that second culture said was important and make it more so about the individual than it ever was before. And what happened with this church growth movement, this contemporary church movement, and where we are today is that we misidentified where our culture was headed. Wow. It wasn't heading back to first culture, even though maybe some of the morality questions maybe looked more paganistic or whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, there's no God and whatever else, maybe that was accurate. But actually what was happening is they were evolving out of second culture into third culture, which is why our relevance was so important and why trying to have really cool places for conversation and having these extreme teen Bibles and great albums like Jesus Freak were so important at one time because we were trying to create bridges in order to speak to our culture and the language they understood. Sure. But what we didn't recognize was that they weren't going back to first culture paganism. They were coming out of Christian culture and developing a post-Christian culture, a post-Christian society even. So I'm actually really glad that you brought post-Christian society up. Mm -hmm. So on Sunday, you gave us a seven-point list. And I think Mark Sayers is the one who first identified these seven points. It's something that I think is going to come up if I'm not incorrect. So it's something that's going to keep on coming up as we continue the next four weeks of this study. Absolutely. So I want to make sure that we really understand these seven points. These are all seven identifiers and characteristics of post-Christianity, a Mm -hmm. post-Christian society. So what I want to do, I want to go through and I want to read them. And I just want us to discuss how that manifests itself in our lives and in the lives of our culture. So again, this is the definition of post-Christianity or rather some characteristics of it. The first one is this, the highest good is individual freedom, happiness, 
self-definition and Mm self-expression. You know, David, the first thing that I was thinking about is the parallel between this and the conversation we just had a few weeks ago over spiritual gifts when we were talking through the book of first Corinthians. The whole point of spiritual gifts is to serve the body corporately. But what we did was we said, really what I want is I want a spectacle for my gift so I can find fulfillment in the service of my gift. That's right. right? And we end up saying me and I a lot more than I say you and y'all. Yes. And gifts are supposed to be very much a y'all discussion and not so much a me discussion. But what we did was we said, hey, God made me pretty cool. Yeah. And I'm going to find a spotlight that is worthy of my gifting <laughs> and I'm going to perform it in a way that hopefully someone yes. can recognize my gifting and then maybe be blessed by it. Sure. And so you hear how self-centered that is. So then when we read something like the highest good is individual freedom, happiness, self-definition and self-expression, I just immediately think, wow, this has really crept into our understanding of even the Holy Spirit's giftings in our lives. Absolutely. Because what we've done is we've said the gifting is for my expression. That's right. And for my happiness and the way that I define myself as a believer, I'm defined by the gifting that the Spirit has given me. That's right. And that's a really problematic way of thinking and a really dangerous view of the gifts. Yeah, I think it's such a great example. Mine is far less serious than yours, but I (laughs) think back to when I was in school, I would have to wear uniforms to school. Ooh, that was third grade for me. And somewhere in like the early 2000s, somewhere in there, all of a sudden we stopped having to wear uniforms. Mm. It wasn't a big deal anymore. Nobody made any mention about it and you could pretty much wear whatever you want. So for the first time, I had the ability to self-express. How did, how did you express yourself? <laughs> With really big, dumb Texas t-shirts. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because Sounds that's, right. I've always been that kind of guy who yeah. likes Texas too much. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah. I wore lots of really obnoxious clothing. I went through what you could call the emo stage for a while where I did the swoop hair to the side and the dark clothes this. and the vans on the feet and whatever. So anyways, what I'm trying to say is that when I had the freedom to do so, I took full advantage of that. And so did my friend group. And so did the other groups in the school who you could label them whatever and they would be that kind of clothing all of a sudden would crop up and pop up so no one continued to wear the school uniform no absolutely not as soon as you were given the opportunity you saw it as a moment of self-expression absolutely and i remember thinking in seventh or eighth grade whatever it was this is the best day ever i get to wear my favorite t-shirt i get to show everybody how cool i am and i think that that's a silly example but you put that in a societal sense That is what everybody does every single day. There's a level of self-expression and self-definition that then comes out maybe in an external way through your dress or through whether or not you have these kinds of piercings or tattoos or this kind of hair look or whatever it might be. And that's really important to people. And even in the business world, we Mm -hmm. now have casual Fridays and maybe not even a thing anymore that you have casual Fridays, but now you have just casual all the time. In the quarantine Zoom world, it's just just wear your pajamas to work every day. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, I, I think those are small examples of a larger thing that's happening, right? Which is that the most important thing is what I say about myself. And you don't have any ability to talk about who I am. Mm. See, that's a really good part to note is that it's not necessarily an issue of wanting to have self-expression right. through your clothing or right. through, yeah, whatever. through whatever. Who that's cares? not really the thing, but that's not the most important thing. That's right. And what we've said now as a society, in a post-Christian society yes. rather, is that the way that you define yourself Yes. And the way that you express yourself is, is the most important thing about you. That's right. So that leads into our second point from this list. 
which is that traditions, religions, received wisdom, regulations, and social ties that restrict individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression must be reshaped, deconstructed, or destroyed. Have you uh, that's ever, a mouthful. <laughs> have you ever read the Amplified Bible? <laughs> yes, I have. So the Amplified Bible is a translation that basically says, instead of, David, you look wonderful today. Instead of that, it would say, David, my friend, my brother in Christ. <laughs> You look, appear to be yeah, lots of commas. Wonderful, beautiful, <laughs> an attractive splendor to my visual. Yeah. Anyway, that's what this that, is. That's right what here. this line is for me. <laughs> yeah, so this this point is really important though, because now anything that restricts my self-expression, restricts what I want to be about, restricts my true self, my inner self. Mm. That's a problem. And we have to deal with those traditions and kind or those received wisdoms. We don't need to be bound by those because really those old people, they really weren't that smart. They don't really understand how the world actually is right now and yeah. how smart we are. So let's get rid of those things. Yeah. Taking in recent events when the pandemic was at its height mm -hmm. and essential workers were wearing very specific and targeted face masks yeah. to prove a point for whatever they aligned with or wanted to express themselves with. There was a large amount of backlash online if mm -hmm. an employer said, you can't wear that, it doesn't go with our dress code. Right. And the backlash online for anyone who was told you can't express yourself in this way by yeah. an employer, it was incredible. And it happened yeah. often. Yeah. And I think it's indicative of this very thing. That's right. Because don't infringe upon my happiness. And my expression, upon my freedom right. to express myself. That's right. Because again, if someone infringes upon your right to expression, yeah. because of point number one, we yes. know that is the most, again, that's who it, I am. again, in this view of a society. That's right. That's who I am. That's how I right. define myself. So if I want to wear my, my little pony there's, mask there's to no, work. There's nothing more important in my that world. is what I'm about. And so for you to yeah. speak against that means you're speaking against the very core of who I am, That's which exactly is the most right. important and the highest good. That's right. So you see now how this kind of stair steps yes. itself. Yes. So the third one says the world will inevitably improve as the scope of individual freedom grows. Mm -hmm. Technology, in particular, the internet will motor this progression toward utopia. Yeah. So again, the idea of utopia, this goes back to 18th and 19th century philosophers who have this idea that through science, through technology, through our learning, we will be able to progress as individuals and as a society into a place where everything is wonderful all the time. There's no more crime. There's no more violence. There's no more wars. We're going to be nice and polite and moral towards one another because we have these social contracts that connect us together. Yeah. If I were to kind of sum up the enlightenment pretty quickly, I mean, there's, there's some other things too that we'll sure, talk about, yeah. but that's one of the things at least that the philosophers believe is that we can improve who we are. Now, here's the problem with that. And again, if you can get rid of number two, traditions, religions, received wisdom, yeah, right. <laughs> I can blindly go into number three and believe that the world will get better despite the evidence to the contrary, despite the evidence of my own heart and mind where I'm a wreck too. A lot of the times, I, there's a lot of times where I recognize sin in myself and have to go back to God and ask for forgiveness. This kind of takes out all of that need because I'm not doing anything wrong. Sin is really external to me. And we'll talk about that more in the list here, but sin is really external to me. And instead I'm going to learn more, listen more, become smarter, become better. And I'm going to improve. Yeah. yeah. I'd love to hear your perspective on the line technology mm -hmm. in particular, the internet will motor yeah. the progression toward utopia. 
Yeah. So now we don't have societies that can't access or reach the information that's out there in existence. Yeah. So now anyone all over the world. And this is an incredible point because I've been in some remote areas of this (laughs) earth. That's right. And And what did they still have in their hand? An iPhone with 4G internet. (laughs) It's incredible. I don't. It's amazing. I don't know how it happens, but it happens. So now the ubiquity of technology, the fact that it's everywhere in particular the internet now we're connected to one another mm-hmm. now we can ramp up these ideas of you need to form your own destiny you need to become who you are from the inside you need to search within yourself and become who you are that way you can self-express self-define find happiness yeah. get rid of all those old religious and backwater ideas of your culture. And instead let's progress and advance together Mm. towards this. Again, it's fuzzy, but the ultimate goal would be utopia. Yeah. Wow. So the fourth point, the primary social ethic is tolerance of everyone's self-defined quest for individual freedom and self-expression. Any deviation from this ethic of tolerance is dangerous and must not be tolerated. (laughs) Therefore, social justice is less about economic or class inequality Mm -hmm. and more about issues of equality relating to individual identity, self-expression, and personal autonomy. Yeah, the worst things that could happen to me are not so much a law that puts in place like a new taxation or something like that that may impact a large group of people. Really, the worst thing that could happen is that you tell me I have to use this or that restroom. Mm. The worst thing that could happen is that you tell me I have to wear a mask into a restaurant. Yeah, that's the worst thing. So I just use both sides there. If you caught what I was saying there, I just use both ends of the spectrum, both liberal and conservative. The worst thing that you could do is put rules on me that that, infringe upon my personal identifiable ethics. And And I'm not so worried about inequalities in the world elsewhere as long as I'm comfortable and happy. Yeah. And again, now you can see where this really starts to fall apart. Because if there are infinite numbers of self-identified expression. (laughs) That's right. And and, all of them are right. And all of them are right. (laughs) Yeah. You can see where this starts to unravel very quickly because inevitably there will be two sets of opinions that are in contrast to one another. That's right. And even antithetical to one another. And they both can't coexist in personal autonomy in harmony. That's right. Unless we run far away from each other. And even then it's just silliness. Yeah. It just, it can't happen. And this is why the idea of utopia, the fuzzier that idea really is. It's funny that you say run away from each other because this is what happens every time a celebrity gets mad. That's true. They say, I'm just going to go to Canada. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Because everyone exactly. in Canada believes what I believe. Yeah. yeah even okay. though they don't. <laughs> They're very polite in Canada. So. Very polite in Canada. <laughs> so they'll be fine with me. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a really interesting idea, what you're bringing up. There will be contrasting ideas that cannot coexist in the same space. So either one will have to win out or the other will. Again, this is where this idea of utopia just becomes more and more ridiculous because what we've seen over and over is that one side will win for four to eight years and the other side will win for four to eight years and the other side. And ultimately they're fighting one another, but from the same ideal, Mm -hmm. we all want to push forward people towards this ultimate good. But the more that we keep trying to do that, I think the more we're seeing the cracks in the veneer there. Yeah. And ultimately what we want everyone to be is what we are. That's exactly right. The ultimate good and the ultimate utopia for everyone, regardless of where you fall on any kind of political or ideological spectrum is that I want everyone to look like I look. That's right. I want I, everyone to believe how I believe <laughs> right. and to express themselves the way that I express That's myself. That's really good. Which actually goes into point five, which yeah. says humans are inherently good. 
Yeah. Because again, if I believe that I'm coming from the best of intentions and mm -hmm. I'm good and my truth is mm -hmm. valid and wonderful and good because yeah. I am programmed to be good. That's right then why wouldn't everyone want to be just like me? That's exactly right. And again, in a tolerant society, I can say that absolutely without any problem. And this is the point that when you start down this progression, this is where you end up, mm -hmm. is that humans are inherently good. Again, this comes from the Enlightenment. One of the philosophers of the Enlightenment said that you were tabla rasa when you were born, which is that you are a blank tablet. Mm. And basically what happens to you is what shapes and forms who you are. Yeah. Which really then, again, makes sin exterior to you. Sin wow. is what happens to you. Traumatic events that happen to you, whether they're actually traumatic or not actually traumatic, whatever happens to you then shapes who you become. And we know that that's true to some extent, but we also know from the Bible that we are born in sin yeah. and in our mother's womb, we were born in iniquity. And so it stands in direct opposition to what we've seen both in evidence of the world. Yeah like World War One and Two, and the conflicts that just go way and way back forever and ever. Sure. It also stands in contradiction to what our Bible tells us, which is that actually our hearts are wicked above all things. Yeah. And what we need is a new heart and new spirit and for Jesus to come in and be giving us a new life. Absolutely. So again, it's really fuzzy. Nobody just says out loud, well, humans are inherently good. They would never put it that way. They go, well, I'm a good person. Yeah. And if you were to talk to somebody about sin, they'd be like, well, I'm a good person. I don't do anything wrong. It's not like I've murdered anybody. That's the kind of conversation that you have with people. Yeah. As opposed to it being like what Jesus talks about. Well, even your attitudes, even the way you mm. look at somebody. It's, it's as in, though it's you've committed these sins That's anyway. exactly right. Really, when you consider a line like your truth is your truth and I respect right. and honor your truth, that is me affirming mm. that you are inherently you are good. good. So I might not use that language, nope. but in the affirmation of everyone's truth and expression being the reality of good and the that's manifestation right. of what good that's looks right. like, we're affirming that statement. Yeah, that's really well Which said. is problematic. That is. And so if I'm good and what I think is good, then... As I look at institutions and large scale structures, I begin to become very suspicious because why are they trying to limit mm. my self-expression, my freedom? So that's number six, large scale structure and institutions are suspicious at best and evil at worst. Yeah, because I don't know anyone that trusts a large organization or structure or no, people yeah. have an opposition toward yes. any kind of large corporation or institution. I mean, anytime anyone gets anything blocked on Facebook, we hear about it. Anytime oh, yeah. that yep. Facebook allows something yep. that someone doesn't like, yep. then we hear about it That's right. because we believe that Facebook has an ulterior motive right. and they might, who knows, might. because I'm suspicious of everything too, <laughs> because this is bred into who I That's am. Right. You know, we can't right. do a Google search without expecting that, you know, Russia is spying on us. <laughs> That's I, right. I can't, I'm laughing, but also this is pretty, this is, like this it feels legitimate. No, we have conversations. We think that our Alexa at home is listening to it right. and is going to sell us something on Amazon the next day because we don't trust. When we are the ones who accepted the terms of agreement by which those things would happen in the very first place. But then we wonder why we have targeted ads based upon conversations that we had. Well, it's because you allowed the device that you're using to listen to what you're talking about. But even so, we don't trust it. Yeah. And then we turn around and go, how dare they how listen? Dare they? How dare they? <laughs> After I signed the contract, yeah. how dare they yeah. listen to what I'm doing? And I think that there's some legitimacy to that. Like, Oh yeah, we're having back. a good time here. But also, yes. I think there is some real is problematic some nature to these giant corporate structures That's right. sometimes. That's right. And so I think that coming from, again, that good intention idea, then that gets applied though 
everywhere. Yeah. Well, even you want to imagine, well, how does this post-Christian society definition apply to church? Right. Well, now imagine a culture that is antithetical towards corporations, aligning themselves with the corporate body of believers and removing some of my individual autonomy to say it's for the greater good of the people who I worship with. You can see where even something as you know, we can laugh about, you know, Alexa and about Google sure. and all these things, <laughs> even something about that kind of thing is still creeps into the way that society yes. views church, because this yes. is now a corporate body of That's people. Right. And again, if those institutions are to be looked at with suspicion and distrust, why would I ever join myself to a corporate body? I would rather just go to multiple churches all the time and just church shop or not even church shop. I just want to go to multiple churches all the time because I don't really want to ever be connected Mm. with these particular people in this particular place, because I don't really trust any of them anyways. And I don't want them to know about my business. I don't really care to know their business. And again, it all plays back into the five points that we've just talked about so far, because churches particularly want to say, Hey, this is the right way to live based upon what the Bible says. And then coming from a solidly post-Christian society, you can't tell me what to do. I'm my own person. God loves me. Mm Mm-hmm. And then I can start using phrases from the Bible to then deny what the Bible well, and says. What, what a twisted view of scripture. Yes. Yes. Because I agree. God loves you. Yes. Regardless. But of, not the way you're saying Regardless it. <laughs> of any of your issues, God That's loves right. you. That's right. However, God loves you enough to correct you. That's absolutely correct. And that's in opposition now to this understanding of I am inherently good. Right. And my personal expression is mm. the greatest mm-hmm. good. It's really well said. And actually, I think we just kind of explained point seven. uh, Right. Yeah, exactly. Point seven says forms of external authority are rejected and personal authenticity is lauded. Yeah. Again, me being me is the most praiseworthy thing possible. And I don't know if this is a situation where life imitates art or art imitates life. I don't know which way it goes. (laughs) But every movie that you watch on TV, every romantic comedy that you watch is all about this progression of becoming more myself so that I can be with this person person. So that's how the movies though. And that's how art looks like in our culture now is discovering who your true self is Yeah. so that you can then go be back with the people that you love in a new way. And you expect that they honor the new person that I've become. Yeah. That's a great example. And those seven things Mm -hmm. that are indicative of a post-Christian society have now integrated themselves into the church. And we've mentioned a few examples of how this has crept into mm-hmm. our own personal experiences yes. of church and how we've seen these identifiers of post-Christian society manifesting themselves in the way the church happens Absolutely. in our own experience. But then there's a whole subset of theology. <laughs> sure. We'd call it liberal Christian theology. Right that has applied these and has interwoven them into a view and understanding of scripture. Hmm. Which is a real issue. Because, yeah. I mean, we've been illuminating some of the problems as we go through, yeah. but let's just talk through a little bit about what liberal Christian theology is and maybe show off some of the interlayers between the two. Yeah. Liberal Christian theology is basically a reconciliation of what the Bible says with what science teaches, hmm. or rather modern philosophy's view sure. of the world. Sure. But the problem is, is right. that it takes science and modern philosophy as the framework through which we view scripture. Not the other way around. Not the other way around. We don't see scripture and then use that as the lens to view the world around us and understand it in the way that God would intend us to. Instead, it says, here is the science and the philosophies of modern thought. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take that way of thinking and view scripture through those lenses. So some of the implications of that, one is that the Bible has errors. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Contradictions. yeah. Yeah. And we're not talking about 
you know, scribal errors. Right, I'm, not, I'm not right. talking about on occasion there being a word that was maybe mistranslated sure. or misinterpreted. Sure. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that the word itself is not inspired by God. Right. Yeah. Because a, a human wrote it, it wasn't inspired by God. The contents of it then are all in question because I see a small contradiction here or whatever. Right. And without taking any time to try to harmonize that or try to understand the context in which it was written, the yeah. time period in which it was written, the words that are being used without trying to nuance and have any skill in that reading. It's like, well, there's contradiction. The whole Bible's false. Well, for example, there's a point in the list of post-Christianity that we just went over that says humans are inherently good. Right. Then when the Bible says something <laughs> yeah. like, there is no one righteous, right. no, not even one. Yeah, what, what, then yeah, what a bigoted someone, way to say that. Right. So then someone right. with a liberal Christian theology is going to see that verse and say, oh, well, yeah. that's clearly not one of the inspired portions of scripture because it doesn't go along with yes. modern thought and philosophy. Yeah, that's Paul's opinion. Right. It's not so much saying textually, sure. this comma belongs somewhere else. Right. That's not what this is about. Right. Instead, it says the Bible has errors in content yes. that if it doesn't align with my view of philosophy and if it doesn't align with my view of, again, individual autonomy, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. then I reject that portion of scripture. Yeah, that's really good. And so then you see a bunch of the tenets of the faith, things like the virgin birth, mm -hmm. because that's mm -hmm. not scientifically possible, right. that Jesus rising from the dead Right. That's crazy. That's madness. It, right. It, he must no have way. swooned and he didn't actually die. He was knocked out for a little while and he's not actually the Lord because he didn't raise from the dead. He was just knocked out for a little bit and they gave him some spices and he woke up. Exactly. So, <laughs> right. Like, so yeah. having a liberal Christian theology means yes. that that is how you read those right. scriptures that, okay, well, the people who wrote it down wanted to believe that that was true. Right. But it's clearly not true. It couldn't have been. And obviously yeah. we're speaking sarcastically sure, here because sure. we don't align with this. No, no, no. Yeah. Let's be very clear. Another thing was that they don't see Jesus as God himself. Right. They would see him as, you know, a very good moral teacher. Yeah. He's another great guru who kind of understood the universe at a deep level and told people to be good. But really he's not any, anything more than you or I. He's just a guy. Yeah. Which Christianity would just, you know, conservative Christianity or biblical Christianity would completely disagree with. Right. That he is both man and God. Yeah. Another thing that would happen is they would read the Bible and see depictions of heaven or new mm, creation mm -hmm. or any of these things and contrast that with hell, right? With eternal separation from God, we'll right. say, being eternally without his presence. Mm -hmm. They would see that and say, well, that's not good. Right. We don't like that part. Yeah. So we're just going to only believe in the heaven part. Right. We're going to ignore the hell part because that part doesn't align with how we view God. Sure. Another thing would be that the most important thing for us to do is to love without correction. Mm -hmm. We, we mm -hmm. kind of mentioned this mm -hmm. earlier, yeah. that God loves us enough to correct us. And it's because he loves us that he directs us That's right. in the same way that I direct my children. Right. And I love them so much that I don't want them to burn themselves <laughs> in the fire pit. Yeah, absolutely. And so I'm going to keep them away from it. Yes. God corrects his children. Right. Because he loves right. us. Yeah. and. They wouldn't see it that way. They would no. see it as God loves you so much that he created you in absolute perfection mm. and total goodness. Because That's again, right. if I'm expressing myself from an individualistic standpoint, yeah. then I am in my own perfection and truth. That's really good. So I keep bringing up the enlightenment when I'm talking about that. And I'm talking about kind of a new framework for thinking, new philosophies, new ideas. And a lot of this liberal Christianity thing is coming directly out of the enlightenment thinking. 
Yeah. So again, science is becoming the most important thing. Rationalism, my ability to think through things logically, the ability for me to prove things by the scientific method. These are all things that are vital elements of what the enlightenment brings about. And a lot of those things are wonderful things. Yeah. But what they led to in the philosophies and in religion is that you've got now questioning of the entire Bible because you're now reading it with a different set of lenses, mm -hmm. not allowing it to be God's word and trying to nuance viewpoints and trying to understand God in this way. Really, I'm trying to pick holes at the whole thing right. in the first place. Exactly. I think I know better. And so now from the Enlightenment all the way up until around the 60s or 70s, you've got liberal theology in places of learning. So we're talking about our universities, institutions of learning, as well as in a lot of churches. Yeah. And so the Christians that those people formed, the liberal Christians formed they gave a set of ideas, a set of ways to live, yeah. a set of beliefs to believe. So they formed them. And what they formed them into were people like we just talked about, this kind of post-Christian fuzzy theology kind of thing where I'm really good and hell's archaic and all this stuff. And so I don't really need to go to church because the more that I look around, I see that the church people are really a bunch of hypocrites. And out here in society, I see that they're just as good and happy and moral, but they're not hiding any of their lives. They're just kind of doing their own thing. And you guys are all bigoted and blah, blah, blah. And so I'm out of the church. They didn't leave just to become avowed atheists. They didn't jump out into a culture that opposed Christianity so much. Yeah. They left and became polite, moral people who would say really Christianly kind of things mm -hmm. without really being connected to Jesus in a personal growing relationship, nor would they be connected to a church in any way. So what's really interesting about that is now we have a culture that looks Christianly. It has a lot of really good Christian elements to it. Like yeah. we want people to have freedom of voice and we want people to think their minds and to have a flourishing life. The things that Christianity brought about in the world, yeah, actually, absolutely. we want to empower women. We want to empower different groups than us. We want to empower you to go out and work hard and to make something of your life. All of these wonderful things that Christianity actually brings to the table mm -hmm. are now so a part of the culture's script that you can almost not discern Christian versus non-Christian. And so when a real Christian goes to speak to somebody about Jesus, it's like, oh, yeah, I like Jesus. He's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I have a relationship with, I know God. And now we see a lot of the Barna studies or a lot of the pollster groups that come out with these studies. There are very few people who actually have a biblical worldview. Wow. Instead, yeah. they have a very fuzzy theology where I'm good. Hell's not real. I'm not really going there anyways because I'm a good person. I'm going to heaven. And so from the enlightenment through liberal Christianity, now it's so enmeshed into the culture that it's very difficult for us to speak as the church yeah. in terms of right and wrong. This is what God wants for us, doesn't want for us. This is how he lovingly shapes us, like you've mentioned multiple times. And so it presents for us in new ways. How do we then impact our culture and engage where we are? And that's why I think this series is so important, because I think the church caring less and less about relevance. Again, understand what I'm trying to say. I'm all yeah. good with having great facilities and great worship. We're I, in a particular context yes, for a reason. I'm Absolutely. all good with that. But I don't want us to lose, and not that we have as a church, I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying in Christianity in general, I don't want to lose what's really most important, mm -hmm. which is a deeply formed life based upon God's word and his presence. And so for the next several weeks, we're going to talk very specifically about some practices that maybe have been either ignored in Christianity, yeah. or if they're practiced, they're really not 
rules of life. It's mm. something we do every now and again. And we hear a sermon about it once every couple of years kind of thing. And so what I'd like to do is really look at some practices that have really shaped Christians for the past 1500 plus years. With all that accumulative wisdom, I'd like to look at what they did, how they did it, and begin to incorporate that into our lives, specifically things like Sabbath. Mm. Yeah. Things like slowing down and meeting God where he's at, as opposed to rushing off and then attaching him later. Things like silence and solitude, spending time alone with God by yourself without a cell phone or even a Bible, just spending time talking with him, praying, sensing that he's near. Yeah. Things like reading our Bible with contemplative eyes. And I'll explain a lot of this as we <laughs> go on. I just want to kind of give some of the brushstrokes of it. Because when we become those people, when we become the kind of people who are unhurried, unanxious, who are content where we are, where Jesus has us, where the Spirit has us, when we become people who are so devoted to his presence and partnering with the Spirit, now we start to look very different than our world. And now we can actually speak into our world with different lenses and a different mindset because we're so linked to God and we're so ready to understand how he's going to move us and prompt us to speak to our culture in a new way, as opposed to us being the perfect strategists who have it all figured out. Yeah. But the first step is knowing what the culture is. The first step is understanding (laughs) what a post-Christian society looks like, understanding how the post-Christian society has then influenced Even the Christian theology into more of a liberalistic view of Mm -hmm. scripture. Mm -hmm. It's so important for us to set the root work of what the problem is. Because when we identify the problem, we can then identify the solution, which is exactly where you're headed for the next several weeks. And I can't wait to be a part of that. Hey, this has been a great first conversation for our root work series. We hope that you're enjoying this. We hope that you are particularly challenged and motivated to internalize these things. Maybe you have questions about how is this really affecting me? Or maybe you have a reflection of how this has affected you. Maybe you can see and self-identify moments where you were acting in a way that was more aligned with a post-Christian society than with the framework that God sets us in the Bible. We'd love to hear your feedback, whatever it is. And so if you have questions, if you'd like to share a story, if you'd like to ask a question or respond in any way, if you could send your text messages to 817 809 As we continue in these conversations over our root work series, we're going to take the very best and most applicable questions and respond to them as we can. We'd love for you to continue listening, and we're thankful that you do. This Sunday, Pastor David continues here in person at Cornerstone, our root work series, and it will be posted on all of the major podcast providers as well as on our website, 